If you've got your Bibles there, please turn to Luke chapter 22, starting to read from verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. (coughs) Moving on a few verses to verse 54. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with them, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Well, in these uh, few weeks leading up to Good Friday, we are taking time to reflect on the Easter story and all the events that occurred in the 24 hours leading up to the crucifixion on Good Friday. The last events really in the life and ministry of Jesus up to that time. And we're attempting to retrace the the steps of Jesus from the Lord's Supper, (coughs) supper that he shared with his disciples, to Gethsemane where he prayed that the cup of the Lord would pass from him to the the trials of the, first of all, the Jewish, then the Roman authorities, leading to our focus on Good Friday, when we share the crucifixion. Today, we're going to uh, focus our thoughts when Simon Peter denied Jesus three times. Now, Peter is a wonderful, wonderful character, and um, he's a character, I think, that we can all relate to. And um, he's got faith and flaws in equal measure. It was H.G. Wells who once said, a man may be a bad musician and yet passionately in love with music. Peter, in some areas of his life, was a failure. He was a bad disciple. Yet we cannot deny that he was passionately devoted to Jesus. Peter is certainly a man of uh, paradoxes. Uh, He had uh, great insight, didn't he? When Jesus asked him, uh, who who do you say that I am, Peter? And he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He was also ignorant, uh, declaring, never Lord, when the Lord disclosed to him that he would be dying at the hands of uh, religious leaders. Peter displayed pride when he said, if everybody else denies you, I'm not going to deny you. I'll go to prison and I will even go and die for you. Oops. And then there's humility. 
Do you remember the story when uh, Jesus, uh, when Peter rather, had been fishing all night and didn't catch anything at all? And Jesus came along and said, "Drop the nets out of the boat." And um, and he resisted at first because he'd uh, caught no fish after being there all night. But Peter responded and did as Jesus uh, said, and then caught so many fish that his nets began to break. And Peter responded uh, by falling on his knees to Jesus and saying, go away from me, Lord, I am a, a sinful man. And we can see that humility. Peter was also a man of courage. And uh, we saw in last week's study of how he went off into a detachment of Roman soldiers and uh, with a sword in hand, cutting off someone's right ear in the process. But we'll see this morning as well that not only was he a man of courage, but he was a man of fear and that uh, he denied Jesus on three occasions. So I think that when we look at Peter, we can say that Peter was most certainly a, a paradox. He was a, a puzzle, uh, an enigma, an oxymoron, if you can ever say that of a person. And I'm probably violate in the English language here. But what I'm saying here is that Peter represents both the best in us and the worst. On various occasions, uh, Jesus prophesied uh, to Peter. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he said that Peter would become a fisher of men. And that most certainly happened, didn't it? Particularly if you can think of no other instance than um, Pentecost, when he preached to the crowds and 3,000 became Christians on that day. Jesus also said to Peter that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Uh, before that time he was known as Simon, but Jesus gives him a new name signifying a new start. And Peter means rock, solid, dependable, a foundation. And uh, Peter was that rock. He was a solid foundation upon which the church was to be built. And there's this prophecy that we've been reading about this morning when Jesus said that all the disciples would disown him. And Peter chirps in and says, no, they all might do that, but for me, I'm prepared to die for you. And then Jesus prophesies again and says, before this very night is out, you will disown me three times, and then the cock will crow. Now, make no mistake about it. Peter wasn't someone full of empty words. This was a, a courageous guy. He was a man's man. And again, when you look at the way that he just went with sword in hand into the detachment of Roman soldiers, you know, how many of us would have done that? But yet within a few short hours, he would not even stand up to the stairs of a young servant girl. Now, I suppose the big question for us is how do we account for such a great defection from such a dedicated disciple as Peter? And the answer that uh, Jesus gives us here in the account is that Satan had asked to sift him as wheat. In verse uh, 31, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. There's an agricultural uh, metaphor there of sifting like wheat. And basically what Jesus was uh, saying is that Satan has asked permission to crush you. Now, in our sophisticated 21st century Western world, the devil has gone out of vogue. Uh, it isn't fashionable to believe in the existence of Satan any longer. It's not academically or philosophically credible. And I sometimes hear well-educated scholars saying that such beliefs 
in a personal devil belong to the medieval times and belief in a devil is primitive and unenlightened. My difficulty with that is that Jesus, the Son of God, was very aware of the presence of the devil and spoke of him and so does the New Testament. And um, Jesus spoke of the devil as a real force of evil in the world. You see, I think that uh, Satan's very happy when people caricature him as a, a little impish creature with a pitchfork in hand, uh, an object of fun. But he is a, an evil genius. The New Testament speaks of him in a number of ways. Accuser of the brethren, serpent, father of lies, murderer, power of, dark, uh, power of darkness, prince of the world, prince of the power of the air, ruler of the darkness of this world, Satan, tempter, God of this world, wicked one, and many other names. And the New Testament emphasizes this spiritual battle which is going on in the heavenlies between God and Satan. And that is a dimension, I believe, that we would ignore as Christians at our peril. It was uh, the brilliant uh, Oxford and Cambridge uh, professor, uh, C.S. Lewis, who once said in his book, uh, Screwtape Letters, that there are two equal and opposite errors into which the, uh, our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in his existence and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. He himself is equally pleased with both errors. <clears throat> and I think that's so, so right, you know, because there are Christians that I've come across that um, the, the devil actually plays far too great a, a part in their faith. But there is the opposite danger as well, where there is no awareness whatsoever of this spiritual battle which is going on. Now in that verse we're told uh, uh, um, a few different things in, in that verse there in Luke 22, 31. First of all, we're told that Satan was at work and his principal work in the world is to undermine the, the work and the purposes of God. And what better way to do it than by causing the natural and anointed leader of the disciples to fall. It was some years later on that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to uh, Christians in Corinth, wrote these words. He said, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. And I think that those words could have been written so easily for Peter himself. Because here is Peter thinking that he is standing firm. He was confident in his own abilities to stand with Christ, overconfident, even arrogant. Others might deny you, but I won't. I'll die for you. I love the way that the, the message translation uh, uh, translates that verse there in Corinthians. And it says, uh, don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easy as anyone else. Forget about your self-confidence, it's useless. Cultivate God-confidence. I quite like that. Cultivate God-confidence. And that's something that Peter should have done and that we should do. Uh, secondly, there in this verse, we're told that Jesus told Peter about Satan's attack, that Satan had asked to sift him as wheat. That tells me that Satan does not have all authority, that he cannot do as he wishes in this world. And it's good for us to remember as well that when we sometimes go through the furnace of life circumstances and difficulties, in that furnace it is God who has his hand on the thermostat. And there may be times that you feel that when you are going through the real tough times of life and the circumstances are coming against you and you don't know where to turn. Uh, 
They're crushing the very life out of you. That God is the one who has his hand on the thermostat and that God is in control. We also see in this verse that um, Jesus prayed there for Simon. Notice as well what Jesus prayed. Jesus didn't pray that uh, Simon wouldn't experience a tough time or that he would somehow be spared Satan's attack on him. But he prayed that his faith would not fail. His faith faltered, most definitely, but it didn't ultimately fail. It wasn't destroyed. And again, when I think of Paul's later words to uh, the Corinthian Christians, in the, those well-known verses, verses which I know have meant so much to many of us, again, this is so relevant that we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. And that was Peter's experience, and I know that that's the experience of so many of you in this room this morning. And very quickly, the fourth thing that we are seeing in that verse is that Jesus also prophesied that uh, Peter would turn back, and when he did, he would strengthen his fellow disciples. Now, just catch that. Even before Peter had denied Jesus, even once, Jesus said, that he would return and that he would be the leader that Jesus said that he would become. From here, we are told what happened next. We're told that the guards led Jesus away and took him into the house of the high priest. And Luke gives us this great phrase and it says that Peter followed, followed at the distance. Now, Jesus was in the house of the high priest. Peter was one of the two disciples who followed Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. It seems as if all the other disciples at this point had run away. But for Peter to have come into the courtyard of the high priest was an incredibly courageous thing for him to do. It was very much like Daniel walking into the lion's den. It was courageous and yet he did it. The next thing that we hear that happens is that uh, a few people started a fire in the middle of the courtyard to get some warmth on a cold night. Peter sat down with them. A servant girl sees Peter and says, this man was, was with him. Peter denied it. Later, someone said much the same. Peter denied it a second time. And then a little while later for the third time. And then the, the rooster crowed as Jesus said that it would. I love uh, William Barclay, um, his comment in um, his gospel, or rather his commentary to the gospel of uh, Luke. And this is what he says. The man of courage always runs more risks than the man who seeks placid safety. When I read that just a couple of days ago, that really jumped out at me. The man of courage always runs more risks than the man who seeks placid safety. It got me thinking. If Peter had not been so bold, entering into the dangerous place, into the courtyard of the high priest, he would not have needed to have denied Jesus. And Barclay continues by saying, It may well be that it is better to fail in a gallant enterprise than to run away and not even attempt it. And again, Peter's life was full of such gallant enterprises. We might criticise Peter, and we often do, don't we, for failing to walk on water, for his doubts to flood in. But you see, he was the only one that got out of the boat. We might blame him and point the finger at him 
because he denied Jesus, but he was the only one alongside John to have the courage, to have the guts to come into the courtyard of the high priest. The man of courage always runs more risks than the man who seeks placid safety. And just a thought for us this morning. How do you live your life? It's a big question. How do you live your life? Are you someone who lives a, a risk-free life? You never ever get out of the boat or, so to speak, go into the, the courtyard of the high priest where there's danger. Are you a risk taker, someone who's prepared to get out of the boat, trust Jesus, or would you never put yourself in harm's way? And I think it's always easier to point the finger and criticize other people for failing if we are people who never ever in our Christian faith ever take risks for Jesus and for his kingdom. Now this idea of the cock crowing is an interesting one which has caused some scholarly debate. Let me explain why. Uh, first of all, I'm going to take you to a, a verse in, in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 13 and verse 35. And in this verse, Jesus is, is, speaks about keeping watchful that he, the Son of Man, is coming back into the world. No one knows the hour or the time or anything else. And uh, that's the context of this verse. And Jesus says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or at dawn. Now, the Romans, to give you a bit of background of this verse, and I'll come back to why this is important in a moment. The Romans uh, referred to four watches of the night. There was 6 uh, p.m. to 9 p.m. There was 9 p.m. till midnight. The third watch was midnight until 3 uh, a.m., which was often referred to as the time when the cock crows, as, as Jesus does in this verse. And then the, the final part of the, uh, the final watch was the 3 o'clock to 6 a.m., which to dawn. Now, the reason that the end of the third watch of the night is referred to as the time the cock crows is because at 3 a.m., the Roman guards changed, and they changed with a trumpet call. And even more interesting than a trumpet call was the fact that in Latin, it was called Galicinium, which means cock crows. Isn't that interesting? The Greek term for the bugle call at 3 a.m. is also translated cock crows. Now, considering that it was against Jewish ritual to keep cockerels or even hens in the holy city of Jerusalem, the cock crowing that Jesus referred to might not have been, as we often think, a cockerel, a feathered bird, but it would probably have been the Roman bugle that was being called for the change of guards at that time of the morning. And in one sense, it doesn't really matter whether it's a, a cockerel of the feathered variety or if it was a Roman bugle, it doesn't really matter. The prophecy of Christ came true and Peter had failed. And Luke is uh, far more graphic in his account of, um, of Peter. And this is what uh, he, he says. In verse 61. 
Just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him and he went outside and wept bitterly. I am sure that Peter would not have forgotten that moment for the rest of his life. I can only imagine what it was like. That look. Jesus utters no words. He doesn't shake his head in disappointment. He doesn't lower his head in disgust. He doesn't look at Peter in the kind of begrudging way, I told you so. But I believe that there was sympathy in those eyes, those penetrating, all-knowing, all-seeing eyes of Jesus, those eyes which were full of compassion and mercy. And it's no wonder that Peter went outside and wept bitterly. You see, Jesus knew what Peter had gone through because Jesus himself had experienced the full onslaught of Satan in the desert. And Jesus knew how ruthless Satan could be, how merciless. And that look at Peter carries no grudge, I believe. It was a look of a friend who understands. But even so, it, this was probably the most awful thing that had ever happened to Peter. It was the darkest day of his life. He must have felt so humbled, so worthless, so useless. He must have beaten himself up over this. How he wish he could rewind the clock and to start that again that day. And then he would have remembered what Jesus said. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that you, your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. He must have remembered that not all at that moment was lost. That the Lord had not only seen his downfall, but also his restoration. Now, John's Gospel gives us a wonderful finish to this story. In John chapter 21, the last chapter in John's Gospel, we have the story following Jesus' resurrection of how he met Peter on the beach and he asks Peter on three occasions, do you love me? Which corresponds to the three times that he denied him. But the one thing that strikes me about this account is the staggering honesty of the New Testament. Just think about it for a moment. If there was ever um, an incident that could have been airbrushed from history, it would be this one. Peter, the leader of the Twelve, the one commissioned by Jesus, being portrayed as such an incredible failure. But instead of hushing it up, all the embarrassing details of what Peter did on that night are brought before us in Scripture. And what makes it even more astounding is that one first century Christian named Papias tells us that Mark's gospel is nothing other than Peter's preaching written down. Wow. Mark's gospel is nothing other than Peter's preaching written down. So the reason, and just catch me on this, the reason that we know about Peter's denial is because Peter himself told that story. It's also well accepted that Matthew and Luke also use Mark's account alongside other sources when they were writing their own Gospels. And Peter could have so easily suppressed this story. He could have painted himself in a better light. And in one sense, he didn't need to own up to his failures. There was no real reason for him to do so. But he did it, and he did it for good reason. 
And every time he told this story, I can well imagine it. And he tells it, speaking of his own failures. And this is the way he would say that Jesus forgives us. He forgave me when I ran away. He forgave me when I failed him in his hour of need. This is what Jesus can do. And this is what Jesus can do for you. And I can, I can almost hear Peter preaching those things, telling this story of his, of his great failure. I don't know if you've ever noticed Christians, they speak so honestly about their past failures and shame. And sometimes the stories, are, we would say our testimonies, are quite shocking because they, they, they are things sometimes in our lives, things that have happened to us that we wouldn't have any reason to boast about. And instead of blushing, instead of being embarrassed, we go and tell those stories quite openly because, and the reason we do this is because they no longer relate to us. They were what we once were. But since we have been forgiven, we have been given a new start. We've had our slates wiped clean. And that's why Christians can speak so openly about their pasts. Because Christ has moved us from there. And those stories just say how much God has done, how much God has forgiven, how much and how great is his grace to us. And that's why I believe that Peter includes this story here of the denial because he wanted to show the amazing forgiveness and the amazing grace of God to him. Peter denied Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been in the place that you know in your heart of hearts that you should have stood up for the Lord. You should have said something. You should have done something. You should have nailed your colours to the mast. You should have perhaps on some occasion said, well, I'm a Christian. But instead of doing that, you chickened out. You lost your bottle, you lost your nerve, you conformed to the standards of those around you and you felt really, really badly about it afterwards. Well, Peter denied Jesus but by claiming that he didn't know him. But there are other ways that we can deny Jesus as well. And denial isn't always about pretending not to be a follower of Jesus in a sometimes hostile world. There are other ways. We can deny Jesus by being too busy to pray. <laughs> And what we are saying is that our relationship with Christ is not that important, that we can actually live our lives without him. We deny the Lord when we allow our Bibles to gather dust and remain open, unopened day after day, week after week, because what we are saying is that other things are more important than immersing ourselves in his story. We deny ourselves when we might turn our heads away from the hungry and the homeless and from the marginalised and the poor, because Jesus says, as you do to the least of these, you do to me. We deny the Lord when we choose not to forgive another person. A person perhaps who has offended or hurt us. Because firstly, Jesus has commanded us that we do that. And secondly, we are living in the light of the forgiveness that we ourselves have received. We deny the Lord when we gossip or badmouth a fellow believer or criticize or tear down or discourage a person for whom Christ has died. And in doing so, we as loudly and clearly, as Peter said on that night, we are not followers of Christ. You see, Luke's words about Peter can be on times so descriptive for all of us in that we follow at a distance. 
Maybe there are times that we feel that, that look from those compassion-filled eyes of Jesus looking upon us where we feel ashamed because we feel somehow deep down inside we have let the Lord down. And I just want to say, if that's you this morning, I want you to know, I believe that God wants you to know that just as there was a way back for Peter, there is a way back for you as well. And irrespective of the times that you might have left the Lord down, let him down, whether it's once, twice, three times as Peter did, or, or a thousand or three times, there is always a way back. And I believe that God wants you to know that. Do you remember the occasion when Peter asked Jesus, how many times shall I forgive? Shall I forgive up to seven times? And Peter thought he was being gracious because the going rate of most rabbis was three. So he doubled it and added one for good measure. Shall I forgive up to seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And he wasn't meaning 490 and then that's it. But what Jesus was speaking of was that God's standard of forgiveness is unlimited and unconditional. And that's what the Bible calls grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We're going to finish with a prayer. Last week I finished with a prayer. And I said then that I don't normally read someone else's prayers, but I read a prayer from a book by Ken Geyer called Moments with the Saviour. And I'm going to do the same again today. It's just a, such a great prayer. And as I read this prayer and pray this prayer, I want us to stand and let this prayer be our prayer as well this morning. So would you stand with me, please? <coughs> And just consider the words of this prayer and make this prayer your prayer this morning. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for Peter. He was a great man. He loved you so much. He left everything to follow you. In your name he healed the sick, cast out demons and preached the kingdom. For three and a half faithful years he stood beside you. And when the soldiers came to take you away, he stood up for you. When others deserted you, he followed all the way to the temple courtyard. I confess that I would have never made it that far. Help us not to pass judgment on him, Lord. Rather, may his great and fervent love for you pass judgment on us. Help us to see that we deny you in so many areas of our lives, in so many ways, at so many different times during the way. When I'm too busy to pray, I deny that you are at the centre of my life. When I neglect your word, I deny that you are competent to guide my life. When I worry, I deny that you are Lord of my circumstances. When I turn my head from the hungry and the homeless, I deny that you are a God of mercy who has put me here to be your hands and feet. When I steal something from another person to enrich or enhance my life, whether that be something material or some credit that is rightly due to another, which I have claimed for myself, I deny that you are the source of all blessings. Forgive, Jesus, for all those quiet ways known only to you that I have denied you. 
Help me to pray for and encourage others the way that you did for Peter. Even during those times when they may in some way deny our friendship. Especially, Lord, during those times. Thank you for all those times when you have prayed for me that my faith might not fail. There is no telling how many times I have been rescued from Satan's hand because you stood beside me. And thank you, most faithful of friends, that no matter how terribly, terribly I have failed you, I can always look into your eyes and there find forgiveness. Amen.